0: Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. Today we are going
1: to talk about creme de la creme. Nice. You'll find out what that means in mere in moments.
0: Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music.
1: de la crème. Crème de la crème. Nobody used this microphone.
0: (laughs) It (laughs) It is yours.
1: During during COVID (laughs) moments. Uh, We're going to talk about the apex, what many would consider the apex of, in my world, wine. Mm
0: -hmm. What are you going to talk about? A little bit different spin on that. We're going to talk about rich composers, and the list will probably surprise you.
1: Well, in this, I think, in... in the Venice world, the world of wine, Mm -hmm. it it goes hand in hand. It does, you're right. I mean, it kind of flip-flops between Burgundy and Bordeaux, but today we're going to talk about Burgundy. It kind of fits nicely with a couple episodes ago we talked about Pinot Noir, and we touched on Burgundy a little bit, so we'll get back there, of course. Neat. Um, And we're going to taste some, I say old. It's not old. It's from 2004, but still. I mean, 16-year-old Burgundy Mm -hmm. on a Monday –
0: I mean sixteen years ago I was still in my twenties. So
1: You know Yeah, we, we <laughs> seems were like a figuring, long time ago we to we me. Were, we were figuring things out. <laughs> I had i I'd, I'd already started in the wine world, but um not by not by much. And mm-hmm. I look back at this and it it reminds me of fun times. So I figured let's share this for scores and Pours
0: today. I'm excited to give it a shot. Seriously. It'll be probably the most Noble, and I don't mean that in a literal, like, noble variety kind of way, or maybe I do, but it's probably the fanciest thing I'll have ever had, and I'm grateful to try it. Should we just... Yeah. (laughs) Should we just go here now? I need my cup.
1: Sometimes I, you know, we will talk about things, we'll talk about wine, we'll get into, you know, composers before I, I open it at, like, a timely point. Yeah. But sometimes with wine that has some age, I yes, you can let it air. It needs air. But I've, I've found with this wine, like, right out of the gate, it's really pretty. And within the first, like, 45 minutes or half hour, so that why wait for 45 minutes or half <laughs> hour is what I'm saying. So what I'm pouring in Emily's glass is from a producer, uh, Domaine Henri Gouge. It's a 2004 S- Nuit saint George from a Premier Cru site called Le Valcrain. Emily, she smelled one. You know, she had Hervé Villamod a few weeks ago. Super fun. You loved it. How do you think this is different in how it looks, how it tastes, if you can kind of try to remember back?
0: This has got that bricky color to it, mm-hmm. which I love because initially when you poured it, I was like, wow, it's so... Purpley red, but then when I put it against something white, it's definitely got that orangish red hue, bricky kind of thing going on. It smells different than anything I thought it would smell like. It does not smell like wine. It smells like I, I couldn't even tell. Almost like um, something pickled.
1: Does it smell like bacon a little bit? Yes, definitely yeah, a bacon. jerky. Like there's 100%. some dried meat. Hundred percent. So this is okay. And what I, what's also interesting is. The, I, I have a bottle of this, and I had a bottle in my cellar, a, a same vintage, same thing, and I drank it, like, six months ago, and I was like, the wine is ready to drink, and it's fun, and it's maybe a little past its prime, but still really good, and now I'm smelling it, and I'm like, like, it's really good. <laughs> and this is where Burgundy is, like, a goddamn makes me so mad. <laughs> like, it's so frustrating, and it's always frustrating, and anybody that asks me about my favorite wine, it's not Burgundy. <laughs> And yet it it is in some way, like it's just, it just makes me mad um, because you just never know when to open it and it's always fickle and it's always whatever. Interesting, Um, Yeah. So I agree with you that it smells like those things.
0: So what grapes are in here? This
1: is only Pinot Noir. Okay.
0: So it's only Pinot Noir made in Burgundy, which I know you're going to explain all of that and I don't mean to jump the gun. Jump the gun. But-
1: This is a nine hour episode, by the way, everyone. (laughs) Burgundy is a nine hour episode.
0: Yeah. So if we were so you've said this was hundred percent Pinot Noir this this Burgundy that we're drinking. So if we were drinking just a plain old non, you know, whatevered Pinot, what would the differences be?
1: Well, I mean,
0: you can't <laughs> where you, to start?
1: Beside, yeah, besides the fact that what because you be, had mentioned, yeah,
0: besides the fact that this is aged and leathery and kind of brickish colored, which I'm not, I don't feel like I see much with Pinot. I mean, I just would love to know, like, what sets this apart in, in other than you know.
1: Well, let's go. Let's go twofold. People are going to a you know municipal liquor store and getting a thirteen dollar bottle of Pinot Noir. Yeah, that's going to taste like a thirteen dollar bottle of Shiraz. So it doesn't that doesn't matter? It's going to taste like red chemical sure wine. That's yeah. fine. Yeah, delicious, whatever for people. Go spend thirty dollars on a California Pinot. Mm-hmm. You're going to get sappy, juicy, high, a little bit like more heat, less alcohol, less complexity, bombastic. A little bit like that person that comes into the room and talks a lot and you're like, God, shut up. You know, the new person at the party that you invited, a friend invited, and you're like, they may be nice, but you're like, Jesus. <laughs> let everybody else talk. Yeah. A lot of California pinos, not all of them, but a lot of them are like that. Go over to the uh, Via Mod that we had two weeks ago or a week ago on the show. Delicious Pinot Noir. Little natty. Yeah. You kind of want to say just as complex. Like it's got yeah. all these little intricacies, and. but that won't age like hmm. this will. Okay. It'll lose all of its acidity probably before it gets – like if once it's leathery, it'll have no acidity. This has got mm. acid to boot, you know? Yeah. A lot of times in Burgundy, you pay for complexity and the hunt and the ageability of it. I see. And what's cool about Burgundy, well, I'll just, can I dive in? Should yeah. I dive in? Well, well let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's sip first. We haven't <laughs> yeah. even sipped. This yeah. is how Burgundy is, too. You just sit and you beat the darn thing to death, just with words, usually. You just like, bruh, 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 instead of just like drinking it and enjoying it, which is. Wow. People that drink fine Burgundy, I. I I promise I'm not going to try to put words in all y'all's mouth, but I do want to say that the nose will get you to a region. Okay. I think some people will agree with me. Nose kind of helps you get somewhere.
0: As in, what are you smelling?
1: Like where is it on the map? Yeah. And then the palate will help you fine-tune that.
0: Okay. And Interesting.
1: Because it's so about texture and the most like – the umpteenth amount of precision of, like, filigree quality will get you places. And it's the vineyard job, the winemaker's job, to not influence too much. And there, there's plenty of Burgundy that's over-oaked and got a ton of, you know, manipulation these days, and they're $300 a bottle, and they suck, mm-hmm. right? They're obviously not doing their job. Um, but producers like this are um, are doing really great organic native yeast work and... So, we'll, we'll go there in a, in a bit, but... Um, okay. Tell me... Okay, so I guess... I don't know how to even go here. We've already started tasting. It's just yeah. there's a loaded topic. Where do we, mm-hmm. do we... Should I start with history yeah. of Burgundy and yeah. go... The reason that I... Cho- cheersing with myself with the microphone, apparently. <laughs> the reason I chose Burgundy was because Burgundy is one of the most expensive regions in the world to grow grapes, to make wine, and to buy wine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Crème de la crème. Crème de la crème. It, it's some of the rarest wine it's some of the most frustrating wine to drink, some of the most geeky wine. I brought this book to show Emily. It's called Making Sense of Burgundy and it deals with one area within the five regions of Burgundy. I yeah, we'll just say five regions for now, and it is um at quick glance, it's 506 pages long. And why is it that complex? You know, I I'm showing her that it's got maps and it's got charts and it's got mm-hmm. paragraphs Because of the fragmented vineyards in Burgundy, it's really hard for people to get their heads around. Yes, someone may start to drink Burgundy and they realize, oh, it's Pinot Noir if it's red. And, oh, they might realize, like, this bigger region and that bigger region. But to get down to, like, vineyard sites and know what those vineyard sites mean is an incredibly complex, very expensive journey unless you're in my situation where, like, a lot of people have paid for that. You know, like, I've gone to tastings, I've, you know, been mm-hmm. part of tasting groups and just had that luxury through my tenure in wine. But we'll start, well, I'm going to start in the 1200 BCE. We're going to start with the Celts. They have little influence on how Burgundy was, is made, but we know that vine growing and winemaking was probably happening in the 1200s. Okay. B.C.E. In Burgundy. In, in, in and around that area. Now we fast forward to like 600 B.C.E. And we're, we know that the Greeks have started to inhabit. They had a, their the Greek settlement of Marseille. So Marseille. Mm-hmm. And they were shipping vines northward, vines of good quality. So now we know that the vine obviously travels via river routes, so via the Rhône. And we we know that more steadfast technique was happening in that area. Then we get to the 3rd century BCE. I mentioned this in a previous episode where we were talking about the Romans. And the Romans, you know, brought with them, like, they were shipping w- vines, obviously, to Burgundy. But they were also, they were planting on slopes. And they were saying, "Oh, let's only plant to places with soils with good drainage, right? So there's where we start to get into, like, Burgundy, just like other places in the Roman world, Like saying, let's plant here instead Mm -hmm. of planting there Mm -hmm. because it's better. We also, in Gevry-Chambertown, there's a really interesting article that came up somewhat recently about there were 400 ditches. Someone was building a house or something and Mm -hmm. they found 400 ditches that were like divided into various rows, like a couple dozen rows. Yeah, And... When you compare that to what was happening in the Roman Kingdom in present day Italy, it was had a lot to do with like drainage and vineyards mm-hmm. and how to plant proper vineyards. Mm-hmm. So we know that during that time, there was like irrigation channels, how to plant vineyards, how to water vineyards. We get to the about the third century common era. and there's written evidence of Emperor Constantine. He was being pleaded with by growers saying, Please lower taxes for us because we're making great, we're growing great grapes, but it's really hard to make money here. But we know that now people are growing grapes. They're selling grapes. There's some sort of industry happening Mm -hmm. from the time of like Greeks, Romans up until Constantine and i will stop there Okay. (laughs) because next we're going to find out how Burgundy gets its name. Ooh. So.
0: Excellent. It's not because of the color?
1: Kind of. Oh, okay. Yeah, kind of. Excellent.
0: Neat. I Probably have just has to recently, do with
1: Danes and Blood, honestly. So you know.
0: I had just recently learned there is white burgundy from you, so I'm excited to learn more about that. Yeah. So rich composers. We've heard a lot about poor ones. Mozart was poor, we know that. He is bad with money. Wagner made a lot of money, but spent more than he made, so he always had a lot of debt and would run away from debtors and things.
1: Sounds like some friends I have. <laughs>
0: So, you know, if you Google richest classical composer, the first name that pops up shocked me because apparently it's George Gershwin, which is surprising for a lot of reasons. First of all, we could even talk about whether or not George Gershwin should be on the list because George Gershwin uh, was alive in the first part of the 20th century. So he was born in 1898. He died quite young, 1937 at the age of 38 and uh, he he really only wrote about a dozen orchestral works. The bulk of what George Gershwin wrote was pop music for the time. Songs he wrote loads of songs, and you know songs like "Embraceable You." Embrace me, my sweet embraceable you. And I got rhythm. and songs that you've heard hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. And uh, that had a lot to do with his money-making skills. Uh, The recording industry was ramping up, so he made a lot of money off of his recordings. He wrote uh, lots of musicals. So if you think of Porgy and Bess is one of his most popular musicals. He also wrote some film music, so he's making money in a lot of different ways in the early part of the 20th century, but not necessarily as a straight-up traditional classical composer like we would think of, um, uh, somebody else who made a lot of money. Um, Johann Strauss made a, a lot of money, uh, and uh, but he wrote orchestral music, you know, mm-hmm. so you're like, okay, I can see how Strauss is on that yeah. list. Well, then you think about somebody like John Williams, for instance. If, if we're talking about George Gershwin who wrote pop music and and, and uh, yeah, why not film the scores, why, why yeah. aren't we talking about George Gershwin? Or I mean, why aren't we talking about John Williams or Hans Zimmer or any of those mm-hmm. composers who are certainly making a ton of money writing mostly orchestral music these days, right? But So it's an interesting conversation to have. So, you know, and even you, Jill, found some kind of conflicting information about how much George Gershwin is worth. Um, but he did definitely make a ton of money in the short amount of time that he was on the planet. Uh, one tune he wrote, he made 15 grand in 1924 in three months, which works out to what, like 200 and some thousand dollars.
1: 234, I think. Yeah, adjusted it for it inflation just like- that you're
0: making in three months. So Guy was just rolling it in and, and super tragic for him to leave the planet so early uh, in his life, but... Um, yeah that's a little bit about George Gershwin so we'll hear one of his solo piano pieces he didn't write very much solo piano music but we let's w- listen
1: to it R- yeah. yeah let's do it right We're now definitely gonna so hear good. it
0: this is um, he wrote a, a tiny tiny set of preludes for solo piano and this is the second prelude it's a quite famous piece of his and it's really groovy and cool so here's Prelude number two by George Gershwin.
1: And didn't he call this, like, a blues, a sort of blues lullaby or something he... Yeah. He kind of spoke to this piece about, which I think is kind of groovy and cute.
0: It's, like, fitting. So smooth.
1: What's interesting about these three preludes, too, is they don't, they're all very different. Very different. So, like, the third one, um, I think he coined it, like, quote-unquote, Spanish. But then, you know, I think if you listen to it and you're familiar with so many people have traveled to Spain nowadays and they've listened to, you know, true flamenco and stuff, to them it doesn't sound, or let's face it, Ros- uh, Rosalia or Mala Rodriguez, they, they're like, that's not Spanish. But yeah. it, for the time, yeah, its it's got a lot of those inflections and yeah. in those, like, almost. The first word that comes to mind is like discordant, which I think I'm making up that word, but like oh, a word. tone, you know? Can we listen to Spanish? Yeah. Can we listen to Prelude number three?
0: Here's Prelude number three.
1: I just go, <laughs> <laughs> those are my castanetas in case anybody wants to. <laughs> yeah, super great, super beautiful. So great. And they're so interesting that the three of them are together.
0: Yeah, let's hear some of the first one. Yeah, please. since we talked about it.
1: A B flat major. Go ahead, buddy.
0: one of course, too. I mean, it's worth noting that of the maybe dozen orchestral pieces he wrote, two of them are two of the most famous orchestral works by any American composer ever, being Rhapsody in Blue. which not only has one of the most famous clarinet parts and openings of any classical piece. But he also wrote American in Paris, which is another wildly popular orchestral piece. And in, in addition to that, the fact that he wrote hundreds of songs... Did all these recordings? He recorded himself playing piano on piano rolls. I mean, he just—he was just a business. He was a good businessman. Mm-hmm. Made a lot of money in a lot of different ways. And George he, Gershwin.
1: But he probably also seems like he was just very passionate. Like he loved. Yep. Doing this. Yeah. You know.
0: I mean, somebody who writes music like that really can't be a horrible person. I just don't know. I mean, maybe they could. Be, I guess. I don't know. That's a whole he- other conversation. <laughs> yeah. I mean. That or not, Haydn.
1: Look at uh, Wagner.
0: Yeah, he was kind of a shitty guy. You know. Yeah. I mean. But he didn't write music like that either. No, <laughs> true. That kind of joy. Yeah, that's you know? true. There is, is
1: an incredible amount of joy in the music. You know, the reason why I asked you to, to take more, like put more in your glass, yeah. is because it's incredible at this age, because it's not that old, but just how fast, I mean, fruit at this point is starting to get, like people are searching for ripeness. And with ripeness okay. comes, you're your flirting with like, kind of taken steroids, you know, or you're getting too muscular, but is it, can you really, can you really chop the wood or, or do you just look muscular, you know? And so yeah. yeah, I don't think this wine is built for much more aging, whereas some burgundies that were, you know, made in the forties, the sixties, the seventies are like still drinking well now, which is That's crazy. Incredible. That's incredible. And so I put more, said, Hey, you know, put a little more in your glass because it, it, it's dying quickly. Like, it's getting balsamic and really dried cranberry without having, like, the lift to the nose as well, mm-hmm. you know? Like, mm-hmm. you you kind of lose that meat, and it goes to, like, dried fruit.
0: Yeah, Whereas, cherries. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cherries. It's amazing, though. I think it's really delicious.
1: We'll talk about Valkyrie in a second, but I wanted to keep keep with the history of Burgundy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it is really, really interesting. So, you asked if Burgundy got its name from the color. Honestly, I don't know. But I do know that Scandinavians conquered the Romans. And there was a tribe or a group called Le Burgundes is what it looks like. Les Burgundes okay. is what it looks like in English. Yeah. And they were a tribe that they were, you know, was originally like Scandinavians, you know, I guess long story short, in Old Norse, they were from an area called Burgendenholm, and that translates to Bornholm, which is an island, Danish island. And I don't know if Bornholm has some sort of allusion to, like, the color of blood or the color of, you know, some sort of burgundy red color. Okay. Could, Could be. But we'll fast forward a few hundred years. We're in the 600 common era, Dukes of Burgundy- Honestly, they were some of the richest nobles in all of Europe. Mm-hmm. So when you think of Europe during that time, there was a lot of money going around. A lot of people were trading and, you know, pillaging and all the things. Mm-hmm. And during this time, some of the richest nobles, they donated a land, an area, to the Abbey of Bez. And I talked about this in our previous episode of Scores and Poor's, because that area now and vi- the surrounding vineyards are called Claude de Bez. And the Abbey, they gave it to the Abbey of Bez to take care of. And Bez is now some of the most expensive wine in Burgundy. And this is where we get, we start to get into that monastic influence. Okay. Noblemen, people with a lot of money, donating land to the church. Let's exchange that for me to go to heaven, mm-hmm. basically. Obviously, the church had a ton of time. They had a ton of money. They had the ability to record keep. They had, you know, all the storage space that we talked about on previous episodes. You know, they were into recording their techniques and what they were doing and had plenty of labor. And what what I get out of this is they started to really decipher the system of crews, the system of saying this place— is better than that place. Okay. And now there's a lot of people trying to debunk that, saying like that was a myth that, you know, they used to help like propagate the, like the political kind of? Well, sort of like the church had better lands than a lot of other people. I see. But that doesn't really matter because Napoleon came along and was like, screw all this. We're going to confiscate all this land from the church anyway. And either dole it out, but also resell it. And who resold it? A lot of secondary like merchants and people that still had a lot of money, but they weren't noble, but they had enough money to afford it. So who ends up with that property? that's me rubbing my fingers together Rich people with people. money end yeah. up with those lands again and so it's that's a little bit unfortunate but what makes burgundy it, it that sort of ties into what makes burgundy so frustrating napoleon instilled these laws in the 1790s and the early 1800s called the napoleonic law of succession and when i went through my like sommelier certification and like taught subsequent groups What's annoying is you have to like, be able to write an th- like hour-long essay on this <laughs> about how basically the fact that Napoleon said, Hey, Emily, I'm gonna, you can buy land, great. But then if, when you pass on your kids, you need to divide your land equally between those three kids. And then when those three kids pass on, they need to divide their land equally between their 18 kids because yeah. we don't use birth control because we're in the 1800s. Or right. <laughs> so what ends up happening is everybody's got, like, one row here, nine rows here, 15 rows there. And granted, people can buy land, but that's really hard to do because it's so expensive right now in Burgundy. So that's why there's a 500-page book published on <laughs> who owns what yeah. because everybody's got access to these lands through, like, inheritance laws. Wow. And nobody wants to give that up because that'd be, like, giving away a... You know, a winning lottery ticket, basically, because yeah. nowadays, you could make shit wine from a place, honestly, and it will sell for a lot of money because it's Burgundy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, you're going to ask me a question.
0: I am curious because so so you say that you know two rows could belong to one person, and then the next five rows could belong to a different person, and then there's twelve rows here, two rows there, like that. So who's in charge of that entire plot of land? Then I mean, clearly someone's overseeing. No, the
1: whole- no. Nobody no, because you own that land, so that's your just
0: those two rows for of cor- instance
1: sure or the, the, or that hectare of that plot okay. that's 10 hectares. okay the, the issue is is you may have someone that owns two rows of vines, but if they don't own anymore, well, how are they going to sell grapes? Like how are they going to sell exactly? And make that's wine? my point. Yeah so in that case, oh, you set me up perfect. I nice. like, Reese, thank you <laughs> this is where in the late 1800s, early 1900s, we see the rise of what's called the negotiant business. They say, hey, Joe Schmo, or Jean Schmo, <laughs> you don't have enough money to, you know, go build a whole winery and make wine and sell two rows worth of grapes to make wine. Mm-hmm. Sell it to the negotiant, this, this I wasn't even going to say Jane Schmo because it wasn't during the day. Yeah. And they will buy all these grapes but more than that, they'd buy wine and they would blend it and then make burgundy, burgundy red. Instead of making, instead of making a neighborhood, they would make a whole city and they would say, and it's going to be less expensive and here you go. Okay. And that way, you know, you'd have a, let's say nowadays, a $30 burgundy versus a $60 Burgundy from a small producer that makes their own wine. Okay, and so usually you can tell because a negotiant will not say the word domain, Where if you look at the bottom of that and it says domaine Henri Gouge. Yep, Henri Gouge comes from a four four generation at least family of vignerons, and there was a time where they just said Henri Gouge because they were like kind of in the negotiant business, kind of not. They were kind of selling grapes, kind of not. And when they decided, hey, listen. Let's, like, separate ourselves here. Domain means you're using all of your own fruit. You're making your own wine. So when you're shopping for Burgundy and you see the word domain, you're like, okay. And then just add, like, $80 or that's something. That's what I was going to say. Yep. So if
0: it says domain, clearly that's a that's a step up in terms of creme de la creme.
1: Yep, and especially because what happened in the Nugugugotian days, they knew that Burgundy was the apex of wine in the world. And so they started when France and Algeria had their marriage of sorts. Who yeah. was shipping wine up to France for money? Algeria. And who was putting dark-colored Algerian wine into their Burgundy to make it darker in color? <laughs> the, the Burgundians. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that's where negotiants kind of got a bad name because they were okay. becoming fraudulent. And then people started, there was this rise in domain bottlings that was, like, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, being like, listen, we're doing our own thing. Stick into sticking to a state fruit. I think that's a good segue to
0: stop and listen to more music. Sounds great. Just a couple other things about Gershwin, really. Um, One thing that's important to realize when it comes to music and really any kind of art or, you know, it's protected by copyright. And at a certain point, music and other artworks lose, lose that protection and things go into public domain. So... George Gershwin's music is not in the public domain yet, so if Gershwin were still alive, he'd still be just raking it in right now, making royalties off of every single thing that he's ever written. Hmm. Instead, his now, of course, his estate is making that. Um, but that's something that's kind of important to note. I remember reading, and, and I, I so wish I could recall the source, but I, I can't. But I, I, for much of the twentieth century. Maurice Ravel was still the highest-grossing, highest-paid French musician, even though he was dead. And that's because of Bolero. <laughs> Which was so popular internationally. But I mean, his music was just worth so much money. I mean, he just was still making so much money off of all the world. so. It's just an interesting thing to take into consideration when you're thinking about you know what these composers were worth and how much money they were making.
1: Well, and if they're like making it posthumously through yeah. their estate, because that's like Burgundy can suck and be in the right hands, and then people just are raking it in, and their wines are, yeah, you know, not yeah. really a represent re- representative of what they should be. But
0: okay. yeah, yeah. Hmm that's enough about Gershwin for now. I'm sure he'll make another appearance in scores and pours at some point in the future. Cause yeah. Gershwin's great. We love Gershwin. Um, but let's talk about an Italian composer. In fact, two Italian composers, uh, off of the list. There are more than two Italian composers on this list, but we'll, we'll talk about first Giuseppe Verdi who lived from 1813 to 1901. Verdi had enough money to retire in the early 1850s before he was, by the time he was like 40 years old, Verdi could retire. Verdi was a composer of operas and made a ton of money uh, wow. for his operas. He 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 was paid 166,000 pounds to write his opera Aida. Now that's today dollars. So, you know, he made a couple hundred grand, a couple, I mean, just... A, that's a lot of money for a commission for a piece there, there are composers in the 20th century who have made more than that but not much off of one piece right yeah so one and to be fair an opera is a collection of a whole shit ton of pieces right an opera is like a three-hour musical experience so it's i mean it can be uh, so there's a lot there but um but yeah he made a but lot of especially money especially
1: back in the day like that was just, yeah,
0: that's just a ton of money. It's a ton of money, and opera is very expensive. I mean, opera was kind of like the TV of the day, right? You're you're not just writing music; you're you're employing a whole cast of actors and singers, and a pit orchestra, and a conductor, and people yeah, to so make the the set. Yeah, so the people that commissioned and, him, what were they paying everyone else? You know, I it was know, like a
1: million dollar, million pound yeah. opera. Well, they-,
0: they were Egyptian, subsidized by the British government, so. <laughs> It's probably okay. one of the reasons why they made so much wow. the game so much money, but um, but Aida premiered in Cairo in uh, 1871. It had been commissioned by the Khedive of Egypt, who was uh, put there put into power by the uh, British government. And one of the cool things about this particular opera is that Verdi had special trumpets made for it, which again kind of adds to this whole like allure of wealth right you're you're having instruments made for your opera that's absurd now wagner did the same thing so there were other people who did this but it's really cool what what verdi had made were these stri- they're basically like super long straight trumpets so we would call that it almost looks like a herald trumpet right so you you could picture a banner hanging off it's just this big long super tube yep and it has on these particular trumpets called aida trumpets There's one piston valve. So a piston valve is what's on a normal modern trumpet. So if you think of a trumpet that has three buttons, right? So this trumpet that Verdi had built is just a super long straight thing with one little piston valve. And he used it for the uh, very famous, famous movement from uh, a part of Aida in the second act called the Triumphal March. So uh, let's listen to what these trumpets sounded like. 900 people on stage, by the way. There's 900 people on stage. It's insane how elaborate these operas can get. It's ridiculous. (laughs) And I love that he had these trumpets made. Uh, It's so cool. And, you know, nowadays, it's not like professional trumpeters own an Aida trumpet. The way that would work is they would rent it for the performance, you know? So it's not like everybody's like, oh, this one time in my lifetime I'm playing this opera, I'm going to buy this Aida trumpet. Yeah, but dude, if I was a trumpet player,
1: I'd buy one. (laughs) Like they just got to have that well, hanging around for the jam session. I mean, the at problem is, is
0: that professional trumpeters already have about seventeen different trumpets and yeah, okay. different keys, so it's, sure. <laughs> they're probably not going to have an Aida trumpet. But it is really neat. I I wanted to. This is from a recording that I found on YouTube because I wanted to visually see that they were using Aida trumpets because it's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. Uh, if you know, if you're listening to a recording more than likely they're probably just using modern trumpets to play playing
1: it. in the pit or something yeah. yeah so
0: it was just fun to like find this video of all these people up on stage playing these awesome trumpets yeah super cool super <laughs> great super great so Verdi another guy who just rolled in it and and uh, was apparently just smart with his money and um, uh yeah super cool triumphal march from from an opera he made a lot of money for
1: wow <laughs> I feel like we've gone, we've talked enough about the history of Burgundy. Let's get into bare bones. You asked me a couple days ago, you were like, all right, cool. You're going to talk about Burgundy. That's awesome. What percentage is red and
0: what percentage is white? Well, after I got to the point that there was even white Burgundy at all, because I didn't realize that. Yeah,
1: Yeah, but you also like, well, there are all these different regions and all this. Okay, so I was like, like, you sign up for the sommelier course, (laughs) because it's like too much fucking thing. It's too much to talk about. But so... Burgundy, actually, I was like, well, yeah, I think it's like, if I remember right, it's like 50-50 or it's a little bit more one way or the other. It's about 60% white. It's about 30% red rosé. And it's about 8% if you include sparkling wine. 60% is white? Correct. But that's because we're taking into consideration Chablis. Oh. And we're taking into... Oh, <laughs> and we're taking into consideration um, the Cote Chalonnaise and the, the Macon, which are other regions I'll talk about very briefly. But that the, at the heart of their production is is white wine. So, so that's that's one of the reasons interesting. why. Okay. And on the Cote d'Or, which I'll go into as well, there's a lot of white wine production, but it's principally there's a lot more, and the whites are they command almost as much money as the reds. Wow, but Um, There is a small amount of sparkling wine. There's about eight to ten percent, depending on the vintage, sparkling wine. That how it's how it's divided, and what makes Burgundy so complicated is you've got these tiers, right? The the Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée or Protégée, depending on if you're Euroing or if you're Frenching, is like the region, the boundaries that protect and say. This region needs to have this amount of—they can only make this much wine, and they have to have it trained—their vines trained this way, and these are the grapes, okay? So all of them have different laws, and there are sub-laws that I'm not going to go into because even people that have gotten their sommelier certificate forget that bullshit, so we're not going to go there (laughs) there here. But so I wanted to talk about—first of all, the the first tier to know in Burgundy is regional, and that's like very basic— when you see Bourgogne, a burgundy label, regional. That's the least strict, but you still have a ton of strict rules to follow. But that's like Cremant de Bourgogne, meaning a sparkling wine that's made in the champagne method in Burgundy. In Burgundy. You have Bourgogne Rouge, red Burgundy, Bourgogne Blanc, white Burgundy. And you're, those you're are getting, all like
0: domain-free? They're just more they can generic be, terms? N- nope,
1: they can be oh. domain or negotiant.
0: Okay, okay. Because
1: someone might like... Henri Rouge makes a Bourgogne Rouge and it's $40, you know, as opposed to $100. Okay. okay? Then you get into your sub regional, which your sub regional is like saying, okay, between this Cote de Nuit bottling and Bourgogne Rouge, I say Cote de Nuit that we're we're looking at here, we have like the HO or the H A U T O Cote de Nuit or Au Cote de Bonne, which is like the outskirts of the Golden Slope. And there are all these different, like, the Cote Chalonnais. That's saying a region that is south of the Golden Slope that encompasses a whole swath of vineyard that you don't know, like, where in that area it's from. But you know if it says cote chalonnaise and it's white, it's Chardonnay. And that gives you an idea that it's a, maybe a little less chiseled because there's a little bit more clay in the soil or whatnot. Yeah. Okay, but so you're but you're still paying like between thirty and fifty bucks for stuff like that usually. Okay. Then we get into what we would call like commune wine. So we've gone from regional to sub-regional to commune, and commune is saying like a village. So like if this just said Nuit Saint George and didn't ha- specify a vineyard, that would be a commune wine. And this is where we really start to get into, oh, I can taste what that is. You can taste it, the difference between Cote Chalonnaise and Cote de Nuit, of course. But like, if you get into, you know, like what is the Golden Slope, the Cote d'Or, as they say, which is like. South of Chablis and north of Beaujolais, north of the Chalonnais, north of the Mecon, you have this like exp- it's the most expensive real estate in the world of wine, basically. Mm. And that's where you start to get into like, if you were to say, Jill, can you tell me the difference between Nuit Saint George and Jevry Chambertown? And I would be like, Well, yes, <laughs> because Nuit Saint George is every bit as, pardon the expression, I know that. All my binary and non-binary friends are gonna get mad at me here, but like New Saint George is just a little bit. Even though they're both kind of masculine, like Gevrey Chambertin is gonna have a little more stuffing, Mm -hmm. and New Saint George is gonna be a little like more edgy and and sometimes thinner and worse vintages and whatever. Volnay versus bone. Volnay is gonna be a little have a little bit more in the mid-palate and a little bit this or that, right? That's where we start to be able to really start to... Because you can do that with other regions, but not... Okay, then we get to Premier Cru. There are 600-plus Premier Cru's. This is
0: after regional...
1: Regional, sub-regional, commune. commune. Then you get into Premier Cru. Premier Cru. And this is where in this book, when they're all specified by like all the vineyards,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Premier Cru... There is about 10% of production. And that's where, like, if you were to say, oh, Jill, tell me you have these four bottlings or three bottlings of Henri Gouge from Nuit saint George, all from this vintage, what's the difference between Valcrane and, you know, Perrier and these different places? I should be able to tell you that because they're all going to be within Nuit saint George, like, finite differences between them, right? Yeah. And then we get into Grand Cruz. There are 30-ish Grand Cru's in Burgundy. Um, makes up less than 5% of production. I think it's like 2 or 3% of production. And those are when you start to get into, do you need to sell an egg? Do you need to sell, do you need to <laughs> donate a kidney? Like, what do you need to do to afford that, a lot of that stuff? Yeah. And when you, a lot of times when you, like, there's there are certain, like, Clos Vujo. Vujo is a vineyard, it's a Grand Cru, that... Kind of can suck because it's so big, and you can have some really pedigree, high pedigree producers, and then you can have some people that are just they're lucky enough to have space there. So people are like, yeah, dude, I drank this Vujo last weekend, and you're like, from who? Yeah, you're like I don't remember, and you're like, well, you don't know Burgundy because you <laughs> should remember that because in Burgundy the producer. Is really the only thing that matters. Like you can Wow. Cause you can have producers like this guy. There's there are no Grand Cru's in New Saint George. Okay. But he's one of the better producers within Nuit St. George that vastly is superior to a lot of like mediocre Grand Cru producers, which makes me just want to taste some <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm, like it all worked up over here. hmm Do you have thoughts about that? Is that confused? did I explain it? Like did I explain it enough? Uh, did, you need to be able to drink this, Emily Reese,
0: because yeah, so want it want to go
1: flat in your glass.
0: So it's just region. What's the second one?
1: It is regional, sub-regional.
0: Sub-regional, then commune, then crew.
1: Then premier crew.
0: Pre- premier crew.
1: Then grand crew.
0: Then grand crew. Yeah. And that's just, you're just taking the um, telescope and moving in, Right. Thank you, so yes. what you're doing? Yeah, okay. Yep.
1: So you're saying, instead of saying Minnesota, yep. then you're saying Dakota County yep. or Hennepin County, and then mm-hmm. you're going in then from there. Then
0: Minneapolis, then yep. Russian South da- Minneapolis. Russian dollar effect. Tele- yep, okay, yep.
1: perfect. What, yeah. is, what is hard for people, I think, to grasp is when you think of a regional designation, if you go online, remember I showed you the Loire Valley and all the regions within yes. Touraine, or within... Yes. If, so Burgundy... If you have 600 premier crews, those are all their own appellations. So now if you go within all of Burgundy, all of Chablis, all of the Côte Chalonnaise, and if you include Beaujolais in that, that's like I don't even know. I want to yeah. say like 900. I mean, that's just like ridiculous to Different. be able to to be able to look at a label and be like I know what that tastes like.
0: Gotcha. It's- so how big of an area is Burgundy?
1: So we'll say north to south, Cote d'Or, the Golden Slope.
0: Which is a portion of Burgundy.
1: Yes. Is, you know, like I mentioned, south of Chablis and north of Beaujolais, the Chalonnays, Macon, is give or take like 50 kilometers. So 30 ish, 35 ish miles north to south. And then if you expand that to include the greater part of all of Burgundy that we talked about, all the communes, all the regional and sub regional, maybe. Triple that, okay. quadruple that north to south, you okay. know, because it's yeah, it you go, you're going, for, you're taking a swath of eastern France, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but it's a patchwork quilt of regulations sure. and flavor profiles that I think really gets into minutiae That once you start spending your money there, it's hard to go elsewhere because then you're just drinking. Like people that really get into Burgundy, it's about trying to. F- like learn the heart of it. Mm -hmm. And then that's a lot of natural wine drinkers are like, well, half of the three quarters of the wine isn't made naturally. Well, more than that, 90% of it isn't made naturally. So now how can we get to the true like notion of Aligoté or Pinot Noir or what a Chardonnay. And so that gets, it's a whole nother conversation.
0: (laughs) I'm just going to swirl. All right. Swirl it. Where are you going while I'm swirling? Well, the last, uh, composer I wanted to talk about who, uh, made himself quite wealthy was Giochino Rossini, who lived from 1792 to 1868. And Rossini has always been a fascinating story for classical music lovers because Rossini made all his money off of his operas. You definitely know Rossini because you've for sure heard music from his final opera called William Tell. And we know this from um, The Lone Ranger, right? Lone Ranger <laughs> used it as a theme song. So uh, when when Rossini wrote William Tell, I don't even know if he knew it would be his last opera. Certainly the public assumed he would just keep writing opera for the rest of his life, and he just literally stopped. And to this day, no one is entirely sure why, because he kept writing music. He just never wrote another opera, um, and don't you think,
1: like, what some people just get over it? Like, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I can I can only speak to, like, with for wine with me. Granted, I'm not, like, Rossini. I'm not rolling <laughs> in, like, what could be $90 million or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. But, like, I don't know. With wine, you start to get to a point where you, like, there's always a mission and there's a soapbox and then you're, mm-hmm. you know, maybe he was, like, just over... The, the soapbox that is op- and the elitism that is opera you know it's no, possible
0: maybe. because he wrote tons of them he wrote 39 of them before <sighs> he was 50 yeah so I mean and, and again like we were talking with Verdi operas were huge staged activities I mean this isn't and I don't mean just a symphony, but seriously, compared to an opera, not that a symphony is less complex to write, but it's certainly less complex to produce on stage than an opera. You, you need, you know, not just the orchestra, but the, you know, everybody building the set, all those things I mentioned before. Dude, so. can I can I interrupt you for a minute? Yeah.
1: Smell this in my glass. Okay. And smell your glass. It's probably pretty similar. But right now, this wine is doing a really special thing. Okay. It's like getting really like deep, deep, red. I still smell cherries. But do you smell more? Like they've been put in water, like they've been hydrated, or no?
0: It's more cherry out of yours than mine. Definitely, it smells like fresher cherries out of yours. Okay, we'll take a sip out of there then. It tastes more cherry too. Burgundy glass, <laughs> crazy.
1: Sorry, keep going.
0: Okay, and- so he wrote thirty-nine operas, but stopped writing operas in about 1839 or 1840. He hadn't even turned 50 yet. Uh, By that point, he he had two houses in Paris, two houses in, like, that's crazy, and decided to just kind of not do opera anymore and just write music that he wanted to write. And he ended up writing a, a lot of what we would call salon music, and he ran a salon. So basically he'd have, you know, just like-minded individuals over for an evening of music and probably wine and food and all of those things. Mm -hmm. And so he was just a salon composer, just a salon composer for the last few decades of his life. When you look at
1: who who came who came over, it was like he had like (laughs) list camp coming over and just like all these baller composers just to like hang out and play music and Yeah. I mean let's be honest, they were drinking wine.
0: Yeah. Definitely drinking some wine. Probably some burgundy. So, in his, you know, the last uh, decade or so of his life, he collected all of this into a, a set of music called Sins of Old Age. And some of it is solo piano music. Some of it is other kinds of chamber music, like maybe duets or trios with strings, with other instruments. It wasn't just solo piano music. So, he just kind of played, I feel like. He just had that freedom to just kind of dabble. And it's a it's a beautiful thing. So let's listen to one of the solo piano pieces. You yeah, wrote. let's do it. yeah. it's so weird to listen to this side of Rossini. Um, some of my favorite Rossini is a set of string serenades that he wrote, string sonatas, I think he called them, but he wrote those when he was much younger. But just, I love listening to his instrumental music because we're so accustomed to hearing all of his opera, certainly his opera overtures. I mean, we also, if you'll recall from when you were a child watching the Looney Tunes, The Barber of Seville, that's Rossini. what you're accustomed to and that's what you think of as a classical musician when you think of Rossini but then he just really did have a special touch with instrumental music so let's listen this is that solo piano piece You spent some time listening to this. Did you have a favorite one you wanted to hear?
1: I mean, I I
0: kind of really floated through a lot of them, Mm -hmm. and I I really
1: liked uh, Volume 9. Okay. Um, I thought it was really fun. I just was so unexpected as I was kind of just browsing through them, and it was just a joy. It just sounded like... Pardon, pardon me and my parents listen to scores and poor's so pardon me, But when you're just like, fuck it, man, I'm just gonna have fun <laughs> yeah. and like do my thing and not care about what anybody else thinks of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And that's what volume nine sounded like. The first I think I honestly just like plugged in the first one and it was just like, Yep. it just sounds like that salon music where you can just imagine like people playing and like talking but then all of a sudden everyone's listening and then someone sits by and has a duet and then they spill wine on the piano and it's just like just so good It's
0: such a fun way to just like spend an evening just imagine like with a whole bunch of composers who share their music and people bring wine and food and everybody parties and Rossini made a lot of money <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Made a lot of money off that salon, too, from what I understand. So, yeah, it's good stuff. Sins of old age. Sins of old age. That's the... Highly recommended. Yep. I mean, and there's just gobs of music that Rossini wrote and, and called that. Uh, so lots of songs, too, which I didn't mention. There are a lot of actual songs with voice. He just never, ever again took that plunge into opera. Crazy. Hmm. Shocked the world. It really did. So cool. Yep.
1: I have very little to say left of... I mean, I have... a like <laughs> a lot to say about Burgundy. 17 but gonna, more hours yeah, to say about Burgundy. I'm going to try to get down to, you know, one thing that's interesting to think of when we think of Burgundy is like there's such a finite amount that we're thinking about in terms of because we really are only dealing with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. We're not really dealing with Gamay or Aligoté or, you know, uh, there's some different varietals I won't even go into that float around Burgundy that used to be part of Burgundy, or R if you're a natty producer and you're like, I'm going to make some Pinot Blanc up in here, but whatever. Anyway, you're thinking of aspect and you're thinking of soil and all that shifts just so like small percentage to make everything a certain way. However, however, we have 14 centuries of people working soil. So how fertile is that soil? A natty person, like natty wine person's argument is going to be like, listen, we have 14 centuries of newly pesticides, herbicides, mm-hmm. but also compact being compacted by machines and horses. And, and how many people are, let's be honest, like digging up and bringing soil back up to the top of the erosion's a big problem, so like bringing soil back how is that the same vineyard that it was 400 years yeah. ago when it was classified as being the best vineyard?
0: So yeah, they're not a, rotating their crops.
1: Yeah, correct, obviously, yeah. Yeah. So that's, like, a big argument for the state of Burgundy right now of, like, should it be this place? You know, part of me thinks it should Mm because it has been, and part of me is, like, you know, people want to make some really weird natty pet nat out of something because it's delicious and it's affordable. Yeah. Good for you because it could be every bit as – it doesn't need to be predictable. Like, I look at this vineyard and I know what it is, so pat me on the back. Like, what what does that teach me about life, right? Right. So – a little bit about Henri Gouge, I guess I could go into it, um, but I, I won't. I said four generations, but I should have said 400 years of grape growing in the family. You know, right now they're using about 15 to 20% of new oak, which is not a lot in the world of Burgundy to, like, give a little bit of that oak character and a little bit of that oxygenation that the grapes need. Um, but they're fermenting in concrete, and it's really fun to be able to to— to taste it, it's taken me 20 years, and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface, you know. It's fun to be able to to taste Burgundy whenever you can. Just know that when you do, there's so many, so many... I just want to have a lot of different scenarios in my head to try to draw a parallel, but I can't. I'm just going to say <laughs> you'll usually be frustrated with <laughs> the amount of money you've spent. And the few times, like, a lot of people will say that it's like the first high you've ever had if, you know you're into that world you just never find that again and you like constantly go and look for it and that's very i do remember my time that i had that with burgundy the two times i've had it and i've never had it since wow and thankfully i've never paid for that in that way where i'm spending like thousands of dollars you know it's just not my
0: jam two questions please earlier you mentioned aspect and that's how it faces the sun correct
1: Yeah, yeah exposition yeah okay
0: yep Next question, because you mentioned, you know, talking about the soil. Just, I mean, I grew up in a farming state, and that was always a big topic of conversation. Like, do we rotate crops, or are we just going to plant corn all the time and make our soil worthless? So yes,
1: that's just burdening. Yeah, what's but
0: but I remember in our biodynamic conversation, biodynamic farming, biodynamic farming, you talked about ways to kind of replenish that soil. So are there any people in Burgundy who are trying that kind of stuff?
1: Definitely. There's a lot of people that have jumped on the biodynamic train because they believe in it or Mm -hmm. because they want to, you know, add $30 a bottle to their wine, (laughs) um, the cost of their wine. And are they helping? They're absolutely helping. But I mean, what did I just say? 14 centuries of like whatever. So how that's not going to be done. In theory, just to start to see the benefits of biodynamics takes about just shy of 10 years, like about wow. seven years. So if someone converted to biodynamics 10 years ago, that soil is not going to be like bountiful, prestige. They'll see definitely see some benefits and, and mm-hmm. see some reward, but yeah. they're not going to see that for decades. So like this beautiful, rich humus. Yeah. I mean, it's just not. That's but crazy. Cheers to crema de la crema.
0: Thank you for sharing this old burgundy with me. That's so kind of you to bring this and, you know, just bring something out of your cellar and share it with some scores and pours. I appreciate it. To scores and pours. Cheers.
1: Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours and on Instagram at
0: scoresandpours. If you like the show, please consider making a financial contribution for as little as $1 a month to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.